Hey guys, John Paulamy here, Actionable Intelligence. Today is Saturday, June 12th, and this is the weekly market update. Of course, the disclaimer, anything that you see on this video or here on this podcast is not to be considered investment advice. Please do your own due diligence. It's your money. It's your responsibility. So last week, you know, we were talking about the reality check, and I, I guess this might not be important for all the listeners, but it's something I wanted to expound upon after last week's discussion around, you know, propaganda and thinking for yourself and trying to get to the root cause of what's going on and what's the motivation that people have to do things. Because it's one thing, you know, if somebody's trying to get you to buy a product, you know, a pair of pants or something on TV, it's different if they're doing something around your health or your wealth. Those things are serious matters. And it matters and you need to take responsibility. That's what we talked about. So one of the things I wanted to go to is how, how the deck is stacked, how my view around follow the money, qui bono, who benefits is one of the things that I look at. And so I want to expound upon that as it comes to the so-called the jab, right, for the disease that cannot be mentioned and show you a little bit of just, this is just like some small research I did. It took like 15 minutes. I didn't even really try to really deep dive this. And I don't necessarily have the time, but it's just scratching the surface and of some of the things that I do look at, okay? I don't just don't read like random, you know, tinfoil hat, maniacs on the on the web i mean i do research things and i do take in information both sides i don't just discount uh what somebody else says that i disagree with i actually listen to it and i try to process it and see if it has merit uh i'm not looking for confirmation bias i'm not just out looking for information sources that agree with my thesis so that i can say oh yeah i found some random person on the internet that says something that I agree with. So that's what I roll with. That's not how I do it. You shouldn't do that either. So it's wise to, you know, have discernment. It's good to have wisdom. Wisdom comes from experience. Wisdom and discernment, you know, are traits that are invaluable. And uh, people should, uh, you know, look at things from all angles before they decide on important matters. So one of the things I wanted to point out this week was, you know, our system is kind of a BS system. Uh, I hate to say that, you know, this idolized, you know, leave it to Beaver, 1950s civics class. I view that, you know, we live in a democracy and the people in government are there as public servants. I mean, I don't know. I don't really want to bust anybody's bubble, but that's kind of naive if you think that's what how this thing works. Um, people are motivated, unfortunately, as I've said before, um, people are motivated by power, wealth, fame, these things, not everybody, of course. Um, but a good portion of the population is motivated by this. And the people that are drawn to these areas where this, where wealth is concentrated, where power is concentrated, where fame is concentrated, you know, it's going to attract a certain element. It's going to attract a certain personality type. It's going to attract people that want to do that, that want to, you know, make that deal with the devil at the crossroads, like the blues man did. I mean, these are stories that we tell, but, you know, Faustian bargains, if you will. But these are real life. It's not like, you know, Satan actually appears and people sign a contract for their soul, but people do make choices. People do things. And so we should look at what motivates people to do things. What's the what for behind a particular uh, event or sequence of events that's bringing us to some, you know, point in time. And so there's a website called Open Secrets. Um, and what I find amazing is, and this is what really gets me, this website talks about lobbying. It talks about how much money different companies, organizations, lobbying groups give uh, every year to influence, I guess, in italics. You know, our system doesn't allow for bribery. You can't like in a lot of countries around the world, you can actually, you know, give a suitcase of cash directly to a politician and they'll kind of do what you want them to do. Um, and, you know, 
that's how things are done in many countries. That's illegal here. But what's not illegal is giving campaign contributions, um, having lobbyists that, uh, you know, influence that are stationed in D.C. or in state capitals that are, you know, constantly meeting with the legislators that are dropping money in the sock. I mean, uh, contrary to popular belief, no one listens to people marching around for two hours in front of the state capitol with a piece of cardboard stapled to a stick. No one cares about that. If you want to be heard, if you want to influence legislation, you got to drop money in the sock. And there's different ways that they have constructed to make it legal, if you will. And I'm going to talk about this a little bit. So here's the top spenders lobbying groups last year. This is an open secret, so I'll put a link to it. You know, you have the National Association of Realtors. That's a big deal, right? I mean, the tax legislation they're talking about doing now, they're trying to get rid of one of the benefits, which is a tax loophole that has been favorable to real estate investors. This is, I'm using this as an example. And it is, if you sell a property, uh, I forget what it's called. It's uh, what the process is. I've never used it, of course. I'm not a real estate investor, but the concept is if you sell a property and then you roll it over and buy another property of greater value, uh, you, you can extend your tax liability. You don't pay a capital gains tax. And this is a big benefit for wealth creation in real estate. Um, and you can pre- almost perpetually use this tool. And they're trying to rein that in the current tax legislation. So the National Association of Realtors, because uh, home buying, home selling properties, this is a big, you know, big part of the economy. They're naturally going to be spending a lot of money lobbying legislators to try to influence legislation to their benefit. Now, the thing about it is you look down the look down the line here, you know, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, this is one of the organizations that Trump was always railing against because, you know, they represent all your big businesses. You know, big business is not our friend. Uh, big business and corporations is about the corporate corporate entity that is not alive, doesn't bleed, it doesn't cry. It's, you know, this entity and it doesn't care if it's manufacturing in China or Mexico, or if they, you know, this is what Trump was railing about, America first. And so they're, <clears throat> they're always legislating or lobbying to get benefits for their membership. Now we come to the third largest one, the Pharmaceutical Research and Manufacturers of America. That's a big business too, right? We have that sick care program here where we're not really trying to heal people. We're not talking about lifestyle choices that influence uh, long-term morbidity and disability through poor lifestyle choices, that doesn't even get discussed. What we do is we get people through these poor diets to get diabetes or heart disease, and then we give them a pill. That's how things are, you know? I mean, uh, they got a pill for everything. That's the American way. Don't sacrifice, don't, uh, you know, have time and effort to maintain a good weight and, and, and a good, good habits, just live the way you want to. Uh, and we'll give you a pill that will fix it. Well, that's really not reality. That's the reality that they try to create, but that's not how things really work. So a lot of money's involved. I mean, if you watch any news program, uh, especially in the evening news or these news shows, they're inundated with pharmaceutical ads because most of the people that are watching it are in a demographic that require a lot of drugs. Okay. And so they're constantly advertising, you know, the things that go on at doctor's office, you sit in a doctor's office and you see the pharmaceutical sales person come in. It's usually a young, attractive female. And, you know, the kind of shenanigans that go on in that business, you know, the things you hear about giving trips to Cancun, golf trip, all this crap that they do to try to push these drugs because we got a pill that'll fix anything. So you go down the list here, who do you got? American Hospital Association, Blue Cross, Blue Shield. I mean, these people are not necessarily, (coughs) excuse me, lobbying for things that are beneficial to you. They're doing things that are they're lobbying for things that are beneficial to the constituency, uh, the people that are giving money to this organization. So we move down the list, right? The largest uh, industry that uh, does lobbying and puts money in packs and everything is lo and behold, the pharmaceutical and health products industry. This is all in open secrets. So are you starting to 
See where this is going? Because it gets better. $308 million spent by the pharmaceutical industry lobbying various governments, you know, in the U.S. at the federal, state, you know, local level to do things that are advantageous for the pharmaceutical industry. Now, I guess if those things are consistent with helping you, that's good, but their focus is not necessarily um, helping you, it's helping the pharmaceutical industry. And now what we're finding out is we've had therapies, I'm just using an example, there have always been therapies, these conspiracy theorists, people are called, you know, taking more vitamin C, vitamin D, okay, has been a big thing that they've done studies and that people that live in northern parts of the uh, latitudes that are cooked up in the wintertime and don't get sufficient sunlight, they have vitamin D deficiencies. And it's known studies have been done. Fauci even talked about this in his emails. He was supplementing with, D, with vitamin D during this COVID thing. You're, it's, it's a known fact that vitamin D deficiencies lead to all kinds of health issues. But was anybody talking about, listen, one of the main things we need to do is get vitamin D supplementation going in this country during this pandemic. No one was talking about that. Why? Because vitamin D doesn't cost anything. It's pennies a day to, to give that to people. Okay. We didn't talk about the fact that like we mentioned in another video, if you're a fat person that has diabetes and you're obese, these are the majority of the kind of people that were ending up in ICUs and in hospitals with this disease that can't be mentioned, but we don't talk about it because there's no money in it for the pharmaceutical industry. Does that sound cynical? Does that sound evil? It is, but it's true. They care about money. Always follow the money. And, and, and to acknowledge that really is depressing. That's why most people won't do it. You're a conspiracy theorist. The facts are that that industry gives $380 million, $308 million last year they spent in lobbying. We already talked about in previous videos the history of the, the food industry to suppress or to promulgate the food pyramid to have carbohydrates. Carbohydrates is what causes the heart disease, not cholesterol. We know that now. They were pushing these statins, the pharmaceutical industry. There's billions of dollars involved with Pfizer and Merck with their, with their, I don't take statins. I had high cholesterol. I changed my diet. I take omega-3. I eat, I, I, you know, I eat differently. I don't eat, I try to stay away from processed foods. This is what causes the inflammation in your body and your circulatory system that causes the scarring that leads to arteriosclerosis. The scarring's created, the cholesterol globs onto that. So there's no money in a pill if people make lifestyle changes. That's why they don't talk about it. Does it sound sinister? Does it, it's not a plan, it's just the way things are. It's the way it's set up to be. You want to get rid of a lot of this influence? You want to get rid of a lot of the crappy legislation? You want to get rid of the roadblocks to change? Get rid of lobbying. No one talks about it. Politicians aren't going to get rid of it. They benefit from it. Qui bono. Let's keep going. So of that $308 million total spent on pharmaceutical health products, the, this is showing the revolving door uh, for this is for uh, lobbying 477 clients. Here's the interesting thing. Number of lobbyists and their percent of these lobbyists that are former government employees. You got 1,519 lobbyists. These are people that know all the people in the FDA. They worked at the FDA or whatever. At least 63% of them worked in government. And now they have all the connections. They know the staffers at the various Senate and congressional district offices. And they're the ones that are meeting. They're lunching it up. Hey, let's go have a steak over at whatever. It's on me. Hey, let's do this. Hey, uh, we really like what, the, what you've been saying about uh, you know, legislation that's favorable to us. We're going to drop it, some money in the sock. We're going to have a fundraiser for you. We're going to create, there's a pact that's been created where there's no limits on spending. We're going to contribute $150,000 to that. And some of that's going to flow to you in your campaign. You see how it's done? And 
64% of these lobbyists for the pharmaceutical industry used to work for the government. Do you see the revolving door? And that just isn't in the pharmaceutical industry. That's in the defense industry is famous for this. People get up to the 06, you know, 07, 08, 09 level, admiral, general, whatever. And then they leave and go work for General Dynamics or Northrop Grumman or Lockheed. They're a big shot over there. They know, you know, some of them were in charge of procurement when they were in the service. That's not a conflict of interest. That's not a revolving door. People are going to act in their own self-interest, regardless if it's a Soviet system, a free market system, a quasi-socialist system, people act in their own self-interest. And this is what you get. So you have to, if you want to fix this, you have to step in and stop their own nature from them, from people that don't have scruples or morals from doing what they are going to do that's going to be the best benefit to them. The system is entrenched and it's not going away. It's going to have to be rooted out by a populist groundswell. And it's, I don't see it. We're at odds talking about stuff that doesn't matter. They've got us divided and talking about things Look over here, look at the rabbit over here. In the meantime, they're sticking it in with, you know, with the right hand while they're distracting you with the left hand. And this pisses me off because here's the, here's the cherry on the top. So this is the top uh, individual companies or, organi or organizations. Look at number two on the list for last year. Look at number two on the list for next year, Pfizer, $13 million itself. Plus, I guarantee you they were putting money, they're part of the Pharmaceutical Research and Manufacturers of America, and they're contributing, funneling money that way. You're not, so how do we get to a situation in the Congress that goes along with allowing a bureaucracy like the FDA, which has, I can sit here for five hours and go over all the mistakes and problems that they've created, over the last 30 or 40 years, drugs that they've allowed to come to market. You know, we have this fantasy that we have all these angels in government. All these bureaucrats are all little angels that are looking out for our best interests. No, they're fallible humans that make mistakes. And the kind of person that's attracted to work in a bureaucracy for 30 or 40 years is not the kind of, look, I'm sure there's good people everywhere, but a certain element is, is attracted to that, okay? I've dealt with USDA field offices and different other agencies. I mean, the guys are a bunch of no loads. They don't want to get off their butt and go do anything. They get their, you know, 60 grand a year, full benefits. You know, they leave early on Friday. <laughs> Come on. Okay. So that's not everybody, but this is what you're seeing. So we have a, 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 a treatment, if you will, a serum that is rushed to market. Because we have this, you know, propaganda that this is going to be the end of the world. And they have no liability. Do you think that $13 million contributed to possibly helping them make sure that they didn't have any liability? Do you think that the 64% of the people that are lobbying for the pharmaceutical industry that came from the government agencies didn't have any influence over the bureaucracies? You know, it's not like Biden or Trump or Obama sitting there making these decisions. There's an entire bureaucracy of career people, hundreds of thousands in different little agencies and little offices and little broom closets that get to, you know, pull the levers and turn the wheels. And this money, you know, goes to Congress. Is it in the best interest of everyone at this point? With you know, we just had it on Friday. It's in the Wall Street Journal, for heaven's sakes, guys. The CDC's having an emergency meeting because evidently now they're seeing that a lot of the younger people that are taking this vaccine, they're having issues with their heart. It's not one or two people. It's been quite a few. You know, the previous threshold for suspending a vaccination was, you know, 25 to 50 people dying. We're well past that with this one. So what I'm trying to show you is, is that you may think that I'm cynical. You may think that I have a negative way of looking at the world. I'm telling you the way things are. My worldview may be different than yours, but I understand in my view that money talks and BS walks. And it's unfortunate, 
but people respond to getting paid. And if you want to get something done, it's not you know, writing letters to the congressman so he can send you a form letter that some staffer sent back to you. You're not going to get anywhere with that. If you drop money in the sock you, and you're known to be a donor, you will get, you go to a $10,000 plate de- fundraisers, people are going to start shmo- listening. They at least will pretend to listen to you. And if you want to get things done, you got to have drop money in the sock. This is just how it is. I'm not here to change it. I'm trying to tell you this is the way it is. And you need to be aware of that because decisions are being made. Things are happening based on this. That could affect you. So does that mean that these people have their be- your best interest? You know, you don't see the Vitamin Manufacturers Association on here lobbying because they don't have any money. It's a rinky-dink small industry. You know, how much does it cost to make a, a, a vitamin D pill that everybody could take every day that would get their vitamin D levels up and increase their health astronomically, not only to flus and respiratory viruses, but to cancer and a whole plethora of other conditions. They've done these studies. What about lifestyle changes? What about, you know, uh, taxing people that are obese? They have, you know, there's all kinds of things you could do if you want to change behaviors. You know, if you raise the taxes on cigarettes, over time, smoking rates go down. Yes, it creates other problems. I get that. It's addictive. You're not going to completely eradicate people's behaviors and change them, but you can motivate people. There's other things we could do for overall health. We don't even talk about it because these people that benefit are standing in the way because it's all about money. It's always about money 90% of the time. Follow the money and you'll get to the root cause and the answer every time. As Charlie Munger says, show me the incentives and I'll tell you the outcome. People respond to incentives. And I don't know who these angels are that everybody thinks that are just up in these various government positions looking out for your best interest. That's just not how things are. And that's very naive and dangerous to think that way. Okay, let's get into some things that people come here for. You know, I don't mean to rant. I don't mean to, you know, some people, like I said, they don't like that. Then you just need to fast forward because it's time to wake up. It's time to take responsibility. It's time to get your head right. Things are going to happen over the next 5, 10, 20 years, in my view, that are going to rat. Like I said before, seismic shifts are taking place under our feet. We are in the midst of a transfer of hegemonic power from the west to the east. The gold is flowing from the west to the east. The east is rising economically. The West is declining economically. This is very dangerous because when these changes happen, as empires fade and new ones emerge, there's usually a phase change that can lead to war. And we're not talking about Spanish armadas and uh, 30 years wars in Europe. We're talking about countries armed with nuclear devices, thermonuclear devices. We're talking about the possibility if you kick one off now, of some real destruction happening. And so people running around oblivious to what's going on, uh, you know, I'm not panicking. I'm not pushing the button. I'm not out here screaming at the, barking at the moon like a crazy person. What I'm telling you is, is things are going to change. Automation is going to get more. It's going to get harder and harder every year to maintain standard of living in this country. The bifurcation of wealth is going to continue regardless of who you elect. There are certain seismic changes happening. There, uh, there's going to be issues with food going forward. We'll be talking about that later in the slide. You need to pay attention. And people aren't. So this came out, we, we knew this was going to happen, right? Uh, CPI is the highest, it's up the highest in 30 years. Why? Well, you know, this time last year, we were in a deflationary, you know, bust because of the, you know, basically the governments around the world, in my view, the wrong policies, but they policies they chose to, to, to deal with this, uh, with this situation around the disease that can't be mentioned. They decided to shut all the, as much of the economy down. And so you had prices collapse. So you have prices being compared against, you know, last year and, uh, so you're going to see a higher, you know, increase in prices. Now that's going to be exacerbated and also part 
of the issue, like we talked about, is when you shut down all these businesses and they lay off people and they idle machines and supply chains atrophy, then you try to turn this back on. It's not like a light switch. These things take time to get ramped up. You saw that in lumber. You're seeing that in a lot of the other base metals. You're seeing it, you know, in some some other commodities. So the question remains, you know, are we convinced that the endemic, consistent, always there deflationary forces, which we've talked about, that are still there and are still acting on the economy? I saw a there, I saw a article that I get from a analyst, uh, Kevin Muir, I think his name is, and he's kind of talking about this and using the analogy of a bathtub. So you have the drain on the bottom, which would be the deflationary forces. And what are the constant deflationary forces that are there? Aging population in the West. Old people don't spend money. Um, plus, they have all these uh, health issues. They have, they, they, they create they don't, they're not out creating families, buying houses, buying cars, you know, they are hunkered down, saving money, you know, services. That's what they're into. So that has a deflationary wet blanket. What's the other one? The tremendous amount of debt that we have just about world debt. I mean, it's like, depending on what, who you want to listen to and what data you want to look at country by country or just the world in whole total. I mean, we're at hundreds of like couple hundred, 300%, something like that of world GDP. Now the wag that will listen to that will say, well, it doesn't matter as long as you can make the interest payments. I agree with that, but we're at 5,000 year record low interest rates. We've got $13 trillion. Well, it changes every month, but we've got, you know, 10 to $15 trillion any month of negative yielding sovereign bonds. Would you pay, would you buy a sovereign bond from, from a country like Greece or Italy or some of these other countries that are paying like, I don't even know, half a percent for a 10-year bond. I mean, that's why they used to call bonds certificates of confiscation. So that's a deflationary force. Then you have technology, which is constantly improving. The ascent of man continues regardless of all the other problems. And so things do get better over time in different areas because of technology advancing. And so things have a tendency to get cheaper juxtaposed against that, you have now inflationary forces who are filling up the bathtub. That's how we're trying to look at this, right? We have these deflationary forces. We have this drain, you know, depending, that's constantly pulling water out of the tub when we talk about price rises and inflation. We have inflationary forces now that are acting on the economy. We have all this money creation because of the response that governments had, which is potentially inflationary. We have supply chain bottlenecks because of the economy being shut down. Now it's ramping back up. You know, you're seeing lumber prices roll over because eventually, you know, the free market does work and price signals work. The cure for high prices is high prices because marginal production comes online and new capacity comes online. I mean, this is economics 101 stuff. I'm not going to explain it. You should know this. And so, but the issue is, is that we have another manifestation in there, our consideration, if you will, is that we've had chronic underinvestment for a long time. Okay. That's inflationary. We, because the supply chains can't keep up because the investments haven't been made. So that's why you see copper at 450 a pound. Now you add to that, what are some other things, intangibles that are harder to measure? Well, you know, we're having a reaction against globalism. We're seeing more nationalism. Um, we're seeing that starting to manifest. That is inflationary. That's not deflationary. Globalism has been deflationary. Um, when you have protectionism and nationalism, that raises prices, not lowers them. And an, <clears throat> another big one that hasn't been quantified yet is ESG. You know, we're doing this uh, ritual seppuku around restricting, you know, we talked about the oil industry, we've talked about how they've had court cases go against them and activists now working against uh, some of the international oil companies to basically tell them to divest of the business that, that, that they're in. This is not, this is going to further curtail supply, which could be inflationary. So you have these, you have these elements of deflationary and inflationary forces constantly working against each other. And you, if you visualize it like a, a sink or a bathtub, is the water level rising because you have more of the inflationary aspects allowing 
prices to rise like we're seeing right now, or the constant fact that the drain is open, that being the deflationary forces, pulling sufficient water out of there to lower the overall price level. I know that's a simplistic way of looking at it, but I thought it was a good analogy. I thought it was a good visualization technique. And that's what's going on. So that's why, excuse me, I had to take a drink of coffee. Um, that's why I don't, I'm not convinced that where we're at on this, if it's transitory, if it's going to be rectified, you have smart people on both sides of the arguments. The goal of the newsletter, the goal that we have as speculators slash investors is that we have to talk about this we, because different, depending if you're in an inflationary environment or a more disinflation or deflationary environment, different asset classes will perform well in an inflationary environment that will not perform in a deflationary environment. Vice versa, the same is true. Uh, some things perform better in deflationary environments and will underperform in an inflationary develop, uh, environment. So it's important to talk about this and understand it. And you have to be nimble. You can't just buy and hold. You know, the Federal Reserve and the governments around the world, because of the fact that they have inserted themselves so deeply into the economies and created so much distortions and so much malinvestment, I mean, they forced everybody to be a speculator. I've talked about this many, many times. You know, the days of, you know, like I said, when I was in kindergarten or first grade, I got my first savings account. It was at the school. You had your little passbook savings account. You'd bring your 50 cents in. The teacher would collect it. They would teach you this stuff. You would put your little entry into the book. They would take it to the bank. They had some kind of setup with the bank. I don't know. And they would teach you to be a saver. And they would talk about, we're going to get 5 or 6% interest. And you're doing the little math. It was part of the math problems you would do. Wow, 6% on my $1.75. What is that? You know, and then teach compounding. They actually used to teach this stuff when I was young. I remember it. I don't think it's taught anymore. They don't do this because it's not worth it. What are you going to get in a passbook savings account? I think on my Wells Fargo, I saw my savings account. Uh, I do have, you know, cash reserves I built up. It's like 0.01%. I mean, give me a break. You know, I remember my... Like I said before, my grandparents during the late 70s, early 80s, when interest rates were high, they would be in 90 day T bills and constantly rolling them and they were getting 15, 18%. Now the inflation rate was high. So your real return, you know, wasn't 18% when the inflation rate was running 12%. But you get my point. And so the idea that you work 40 years, you get a pension, you can have a dignified retirement, you have some savings and you can put it in CDs as risk-free as you can get CDs, T-bills, that kind of stuff that pay you four or 5%, that's over with. So you're forced into the markets as an old person. You're forced into the markets as a young person. Who benefits? Well, Wall Street, they don't care if you make money or not. They just want to churn, get assets under management so they can cream fees off or get you trading. There's all kinds of fees embedded in that. That's something that people don't talk, think about or talk about in their investment plans. What are all the fees you're paying? You should total them up. They're fairly significant. They can be. What ETFs are you buying? What's, what's, what's the fees? Now, I remember I was talking to like, I'm in this Uzbekistan fund. I think it's a, two, it's a 220. So they get 2% a year and then 20% of any profits over a uh, high watermark. But the, the, the opportunity is so large and the returns are so large, on a, you know, it's worth paying certain fees sometimes because it gives you access that you wouldn't normally have or expertise. But typically paying high fees is not a good thing. So I'm getting off track a little bit. So what I'm trying to tell you is, is I don't know, I'm not saying we're going to enter a Weimar hyperinflation, but I also think that this could be transitory. You know, you're starting to get rumblings. You know, the Federal Reserve, like a week or two ago, pulled back the bond purchases around the corporate bonds that they were doing. They kind of quietly did that. So they're inching closer and closer to possibly starting to talk about raising interest rates or whatever, because uh, prices are going up across the board. And I think we're going to see some more of this. You know, I think we're, you know, people ask me to talk about inflation and deflation. I'm probably going to do a separate video on it. I don't want to get too far into it on this, but I just wanted to point this out to you. This is what we expect to happen. This is the biggest increase in 30 years. So that's why it's got people's attention. And yet, uh, you know, people are like oblivious to this because it takes a while 
to start changing people's mindset. But this, you know, a couple months of this or a year of this will be an issue. And you're seeing it. People are complaining. You know, uh, you watch people that are in the grocery store. They pick up a you know a package of New York strips that's fifty eight dollars for four uh, cuts, and they look at it and you see them set it back down. They can't afford it. Cannot afford it. Prices are going up for, for these things. So I wanted to talk about Schlumberger, oh, the oil service giant. Uh, we talked about it. Uh, a while back, uh, as uh, I put it out there as a free, uh, I, I like putting out a certain amount of free things bec- that are kind of in the industry that I'm interested in in the newsletter. Of course, we have more speculative oil service uh, names in the newsletter because we're trying to get you know ten times our money. We're not trying to you know get doubles, and you know doubles are good, but we're trying to hit the ball out of the park in the newsletter. But Schlumberger, being in the oil services industry, the giant, is kind of giving you an idea of where the industry is going. And here's some comments from the CEO recently. He's talking about the oil industry and the recovery that's happening. In the context of the growing economic rebound, this upcoming industry cycle can potentially be characterized as a super cycle. It will be broad-based across geographies and operational environments land, offshore, North America, and particularly international markets. And it occurs at a pivotal time of digital transformation and energy transition. The long-term fundamentals of oil and gas are strong and will have an important role to play in the future energy mix. There remains a favorable outlook for oil and gas in the near to medium term with significant investment required, with significant investment required to bring additional oil and gas to market and offset production decline. The combination of these factors will deliver double-digit growth in this upcoming recovery, and our ambition is to outperform both margins expansion and cash flow generation when compared with previous upcycles. So the point is this. I'll put a link to the presentation. You can look at it. Yeah, is the guy talking his book? Yeah, he's, of course, bullish on the oil services industry. He's an oil service business. But it's important to – these people have their finger on the pulse. Um. Oil and gas isn't going away. They actually talk about how they're starting to get into some more things around rebuildables and some of these other alternative technologies. Everybody's doing that's a fashionable thing to do. I think um, actually back in the day, Schlumberger, uh, back uh, during like the early 80s, bought Fairchild Semiconductor, if I'm not mistaken. They were in a semiconductor industry also as they branched. Everybody was getting away from oil back then. That ended up turning into a bust. Not saying they're going to do that now, but this is what you get, right? You get thesis creep at these companies because they're trying to meet these mandates or trying to please Wall Street. So anyways, you see that we need significant investment is required. That's the key term. Significant investment is required to bring additional oil and gas to market and offset production decline. Remember, you don't necessarily need to have demand growth every year get back to the previous high of 100 million barrels a day, which I believe we will do later this year, early 2022, you have to offset six to 7% production decline. That's six or 7 million barrels of new production that has to be found and brought online every year to compensate for the declines, the natural declines that happen. You know, Exxon pointed out in one of their, one of their um, pieces that they were anticipating 6% annual declines just from attrition of the wells that have been previously drilled. These are not, as I've said before, these things go through a life cycle and they decline over time. You have to continuously invest in new reserves and new production in an extractive industry, or you're basically just in runoff. You'll run your production off and go out of business. And so the demand, if the demand for oil and gas isn't going away, which it's not, and ain't time frame that's relevant for what we're talking about is an investment theme and you have lack of investment which has been acknowledged across the industry then we're going to have a super cycle in oil i believe we're going to have all-time highs in oil over the next 18 and 24 months it's going to shock people how high oil goes and how did this happen because people have convinced themselves in the media and in industry that we're going to have this transition and we very well very well may have a transition It's not going to happen in the next year or two. What is going to happen is higher energy prices. 
and it's going to be detrimental to the economy. And it's going to be detrimental to you. And, you know, demand for gasoline is inelastic. People have to drive. They have to go places. We've created a car culture. I talked about it last week. I'm up there in southwest Houston in Rosenberg on a job. I live in Rosenberg and commute 15 minutes to the job. They're building all the freeways three wide going south. It would still take you 40 minutes, an hour to get to downtown Houston from there. And they're going south further along the highway. They build the highway out and then everything builds along it. You know, kind of reminds you of that movie, Once Upon a Time in the West. You know, buy the land far away, they bring the railroad through, and then, you know, you build a town. That's kind of the same deal. So is the car culture going away? We're all going to electric in a year or two. It's not going to happen. Oil and gas is going to be with us for a while. And as the recent spat with North Face and that oil company show, you know, these oil company wanted to order these uh, jackets or vests or something from North Face. And North Face wouldn't do it because they're an oil and gas business. They didn't want to, you know, they wanted to uh, crap on the oil and gas business. And then the CEO of that company, I think it was Liberty Services or Oil Service Company, he did a video where he said they went through the catalog of North Face and every single product in the North Face catalog had an oil or petrochemical component in it. So he was pointing out the hypocrisy. So we've said this before. How has Schlumberger performed? Very well for us. I mean... Um, I don't know where any folks took advantage of the recommendation, but, you know, I own the stock as uh, part of my uh, personal portfolio, and I think it's up uh, 50% for my bar, something like that. It's done very well and will continue to do well as we have more increased spending happening in the oil and gas industry to replace reserves. It's just going to happen. So talk, let's talk about coal. I mean, People are really sleeping on this. A lot of people are. I think a lot of you guys get this. You've seen it. I get a lot of messages and on Twitter, in emails. People, you know, in a fin twit in our close circle here of listeners, you've been on this theme. And look at the move, you know, since March, just this quarter, you know, we're up almost 50% in the, this is Newcastle coal prices in Australia. But this is similar, you know, you're seeing similar moves around different coal prices around the world. Why? Well, natural gas prices, you know, these fuels compete for electric, electrical production or production of electricity. There's a lot of fuel switching that goes on. So if gas prices go up and, you know, we're over $3 and a thousand cubic feet in the U.S., there's been fuel shifting to coal. Now it hasn't been massive and it may not be permanent, but it's a shift. And the same thing, you're having a lar very large price increases in LNG around the world. And so where people can build coal or use coal, they're shifting to coal. And so you're seeing an increase in price. Um, you're seeing an increase in prices because, I'll go into some other slides, you know, coal plants are still being built. People are industrializing. Coal's not going away. Again, we have this view from ESG, we're not putting new money into coal plants. We're not putting new money or coal mines. People are not out there uh, building new coal mines. Matter of fact, we just had the divestment last week. It was uh, it's just started trading. Uh, Anglo American is a big you know mining conglomerate with a lot of assets in Africa. They just divested their South African thermal coal business. Now the thermal coal business cash flows and makes money, but they didn't want that attached to their company anymore. They didn't want that stigma because of the ESG, then they could virtue signal. And so they spun this thing off to shareholders. And now many of the shareholders get the shares of this coal, coal company, and then they dump the shares because they can't hold it. So you had this huge drawdown in this asset, which I'm taking a look at it right now. I'm not buying it yet. I'm taking a look at it, but that's what I like for selling. So all these companies and all these funds, these ETFs that got these shares, that's they want to hold Anglo-American. They put pressure on Anglo-American. The media put pressure on Anglo-American. So they divested this coal company and there was all this forced selling. So you could see the stock just tanked. But the assets are still there. The coal's still being exported. The cash flows are there. So then you have, to, you have to take a look at whether or not it's worth it to you or if the company's worth enough. At, you know, at some point, if the price drops enough, everything's worth buying. I'll buy anything if the price is right. And so, you're, you know, is this phenomenon going to continue at these prices? I don't know. But uh, I'll show you some additional slides. It's got two or three slides on coal. 
But you see what's happening here. If you artificially constrict the supply, the supply was already constricted and now the demand increases. It's again, we're at economics 101. And one of the coal producers, thermal coal producers that we bought in the portfolio has had a massive run since we've recommended. It. I think it's more than doubled. And it's got a lot higher to go if these coal prices stay where I think they're going to stay. So this particular coal company we have in the uh, portfolio is doing similar to what Antero Resources did. They issue, they have an uh, at-the-market filing so they can sell stock as their equity appreciates. And they've been, it's been speculated at least, that they have been buying back their debt in the open market, the bonds, at very discounted prices. That's kind of what Antero did. You see how that worked out. This is going to be possibly a similar setup. So I'm not going to give the name. I think everybody kind of knows what it is by now, unless you're under a rock. But, you know, this is what we talk about. This is the kind of themes that we get on before everybody else is talking about it. We were into these, talking about these stocks six months, a year ago. China's coal shortage may lead to more power rationing. More Chinese provinces are considering electricity rationing because of a surge in consumption and tighter coal supplies for power generation. Not enough supply. What goes up when you have demand, but you don't have enough supply? The price goes up. Chinese coal importers have struggled to procure sufficient seaborne coal to offset the domestic supply crunch since Beijing informally banned Australian coal last year. After Canberra called for an investigation into the origins of the disease that cannot be mentioned, China imported 21 million tons of all types of coal in May, down 4.6% on the year. This took its total January to May imports to 111 million tons, down by 25%. So this is what you're talking about when I talk about, you know, the East is rising. China is trying to create its hegemon. It doesn't want to be criticized, and it's trying to use its economic clout to influence other countries. And Australia wasn't having it. They wanted an investigation. Now we're seeing it, right? Remember when the disease that could not be mentioned came out and certain people said, well, this doesn't look like a normal animal to human transition. This looks like it could be, you know, been manufactured in a lab. Remember when people said that last year? Remember how they were banned from Facebook? They were banned from Twitter. They were banned from YouTube. They were called conspiracy nuts. Remember how the press took after President Trump when he just asked to have an investigation into it? And now what are we finding out? What are we finding out now? They're having, they, they think they have good reason to believe now that the thing was created in a lab and that our own government was financing it. And that this Fauci clown was knee deep in it. Yeah, I'm the conspiracy theorist. I fell off a ladder on my head. And so the Chinese don't like being criticized. They don't like being criticized about how they treat their Muslim minority in Western China. Okay, so if you do that, or if you're like, you know, you see how the NBA cows house to them. Nobody wants to criticize China or they cut the money off. They cut the money off. It's all about money. Again, we're talking about money, but the Australians have stood fast. They wanted an investigation. So the Chinese said it was to the point where ships were in the port from Australia with thermal coal and they wouldn't unload them. No more coal from Australia. Well, coal is not as fungible as oil, but it is still pretty fungible. So there's other markets for the, for the coal and China still has to buy the coal from somewhere. So they're scrambling around creating all this, you know, because they're trying to use their economic uh, heavyweight status to influence politics. That's what big countries do. That's what the U.S. does. It's called a hegemon. So anyways, they're having record uh, temperatures over there, record electricity demand, and they don't have enough coal. So they're having rolling blackouts and rationing. Get it? See, see how this works? Coal producers plan 400 new mines. The world's coal producers are currently planning as many as 432 new mine projects with 2.28 billion tons of annual output capacity. Research published on Thursday showed, I'll put a link to the article in the show notes. Putting targets for slowing global climate change at risk. Now pay attention to the countries that are accounting for this. China, Australia, 
India and Russia account for more than three quarters of the new projects. You know, you take Australia as a resource-based economy. They're big on the climate change, just like Canada, but, you know, they kind of, I don't know how they rationalize in their mind about, you know, global climate change, and they're one of the biggest producers of coal and evidently are going to increase production, just like you see in Canada with the oil sands. But look at the three other countries, China, India, and Russia. Are you seeing this? This is part of the bifurcation we've been talking about in the world economy and world politics, where you have the U.S. and Western Europe going nuts about ESG and China, India, and Russia. You know, China and India are still industrializing. China and India want to increase the wealth of their countries. China and India have billion between them, you know, a third of the world's population or more, and they need to get these people out of poverty. They need electrification, quick, cheap, fast. You get that with coal and natural gas. Natural gas is not as storable, movable, so coal is, is the key. And Russia is a big coal producer. They don't buy into the nonsense. They're, they're, they're going to keep producing coal. So here you go. President Xi Jinping said earlier this year that the country would start to cut coal production, but not until 2026. <laughs> the Chinese lie, guys. They don't care. And the people in the West, the politicians, they keep eating it up. So we're coming to a head on that too, right? Because the global climate is not going to be able to be dealt with satisfactorily to the satisfaction of people in the West and in the wealthy countries because they're eventually going to see, you have to judge people on what they do, not what they say. And the Chinese just keep BSing everybody. They're not going to do anything. They're going to do what is best for China. So they're not going to do, any, they're not going to do anything with uh, coal production until 2026. That's five years from now. And when 2026 comes, well, maybe they'll have sufficient nuclear capacity. I don't know. Or maybe they'll just blow off the West again. And what's the West going to do? Gonna start a thermonuclear war over it. You're gonna go uh, keep coal shipments from Australia from coming to Chinese ports. What are you gonna do? You're gonna sanction China. You're gonna sanction Russia. You're gonna sanction India. Really? See how that works out for you. Coal production in the U.S. is up 11 percent. The United States Energy Information Administration forecasts coal production of about 600 million short tons in 2021 up 11.3% from the estimated 2020 output of 539 million short tons. The agency's short-term energy outlook report said on June 8th. Now, I'm not saying this is because increased demand. I think demand is coming back. I mean, we did have an economic, uh, forced economic depression last year, so that forced energy consumption down across the board. So this could just be a recovery. But what I'm telling you is you're getting a recovery. You're going from less bad, you're going from bad to less bad and that like we've talked about before that can result in a tremendous re-rating of companies and we're seeing that with some of these coal stocks coal exports for 2021 were projected to total 80.6 million short tons up 16 percent from the previous years export expectations hit a three-month high well they have to because china is looking for coal because they're not importing australian coal they have to get it from somewhere they're getting it from Russia. They're getting it from the U.S. They're getting it from their own mines. I mean, this is where the opportunities are right now. This isn't something you buy. It's not part of the coffee can portfolio that you come back and look at 20 years. This could be a six to 18 month trade. I don't know. But we're seeing violent upside as these prices for this product go up. We're seeing re-ratings. And we've seen with some of the other portfolio constituents, like the copper miner we have, that was on the basis of this time last year, March of last year, we have a copper company in Chile that was issuing warnings that it, a going concern notice, basically that they were on the verge of bankruptcy. And then the copper price went from about a buck 75 to 450, and now they're rolling in cash. That's how fast it can fix itself. And these, that's why I like these cyclical markets. Within 12 months, everything went from despair despondency, putting out warnings that we're, we're going to possibly go bankrupt. And then the price of the commodity, you know, goes up from, you know, two bucks to four bucks. And now we're in high cotton and the stock prices respond. And the same thing's happening in coal. I keep talking about this. Global food prices keep rising. 
you know, we're in the West, you know, I talked about, you know, people are struggling here. I talked about the food bank that our company helped out last year. Um, the people, as we were unloading the food, people were driving up trying to get food right then. I mean, people are, there's a lot of desperate people out there and just overall prices are going up. That's part of the overall inflation impulse that we're in, but it's all, I keep warning people there's adverse weather out there in many growing regions and we are going to, you know, we've been spoiled by a decade or more of, of optimum growing conditions. That's changing. I keep warning people in many countries, people spend half their money or more just on food. And so when food prices go up 30%, that is a big problem. As I said before, and pointed out in a previous video, the whole Arab Spring that, that was, you know, 10 years ago, whenever it was, was precipitated by rising food prices. Not because people wanted democracy. Their food prices, their subsidies from their governments for bread, these kind of things, people were getting nervous and panicking because they were scared they weren't going to have enough food. And we're going to see more of this. Pay attention to this. There's opportunities in agriculture. So I want to talk about this, uh, Mike Schellenberger, who's a big, he's a former environmentalist and he's a big advocate of nuclear. He was, uh, you know, kind of got off the rebuildables tip, uh, when he realized that that wasn't going to be the end all be all solution for climate change. And he, you know, I mean, maybe people feel like he's dunking on that renewables, but, uh, you know, this, He's just pointing out studies and writing articles. So I thought this was interesting. And, and, and I suspected this and had read this elsewhere, but I wanted to bring it to your attention, linked to the article in the show notes. Solar panels degrade faster than thought. Solar asset underperformance continues to worsen with projects chronically underperforming P99 estimates and modules degrading faster than previously anticipated. Risk management firm KW Kilowatt Hour Analytics has found the most notable finding from the report, which builds on a finding from last year's edition, is that operational solar assets are continuing to experience higher than expected rates of degradation, with annual degradation in the field observed at around 1%. Allowing these risks to go unchecked harms investment returns and ultimately damages the industry's collective credibility. It is now more important than ever for financiers, sponsors, insurers, consultants, lawyers, and engineers to reflect on our current trajectory and to build new solutions to manage these emergent risks. You know, you're told when you look at the solar manufacturer's cut sheet for his panel that these panels are going to last 25 to 30 years. And they also give guarantees on degradation. So this is like, they will tell you, and this is built into the numbers. So if we're degrading faster than the projections from the manufacturers, so what does it mean if you get a guarantee from a Chinese manufacturer? Are you going to be able to collect on it? Are they just going to blow you off? Are they just going to fold up shop? I mean, what's it worth? I told the experience, you know, the story uh, when I was in a power plant working for the largest utility in the United States, and we had, uh, this was a thermal unit that was a biomass unit. And the first section of tubes in the boiler is a superheater section. So you're boiling, I'm not going to get into the steam cycle, but suffice to say that this is get the highest temperatures in the boiler where you're superheating the steam. Okay. And I'm not going to get into thermodynamics, but just take my word for it. So this is, you know, a very important part, part of the boiler. It's under a lot of stress. And so it had certain metallurgical requirements for the boiler tubes. So we kept blowing out boiler tubes and, you know, we were looking at all facets. We were doing root cause analysis. Was it the water chemistry that was causing corrosion on the inside? Was it improper operation of the unit, uh, thermal cycling, all these different things that you get engineers involved with. And so when we cut one of the sections, you know, you have to repair the boiler and bring it back on. So you do what's when the, when a tube section lets go, you get some boiler make, you shut the unit down go cold iron and the boiler makers come in. And they cut the section out and they put a new section of metal in tube. It's called a Dutchman. It can be, you know, a foot long, three feet long, whatever. And it's all engineered. They have welders. These guys know how to weld. It's, it's a big process. These guys are sitting up there in a bosun chair working off scaffolding. Um, it's, it's a good trade. And these guys are highly skilled. We kept having this issue. And it's kind of dangerous to be popping superheater tubes. You know, the expansion of steam is like 600 to 1. 
So you're containing a lot of energy in these tubes. So it's not, <laughs> it's not a good idea to be popping tubes. So we took, we said, we got to do some, you know, metallurgical analysis of this boiler tube, which were supplied by a manufacturer that's reputable, but had moved a lot of their manufacturing out of Canada and the U.S. to China and Mexico. I'm not going to mention the manufacturer, but that's what happened. And so we sent this to the, you know, the factory reps came. They're like, no, 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 don't worry about it. You know, uh, guys in the U.S. And I, we did some initial, the boilermakers, we were like, there's something wrong with this metallurgy. You know, we, we've seen this before and it's the wrong metallurgy. Something's wrong here. These things shouldn't be popping like this. Now they're not engineers, but they have, you know, superintendent that's doing the job's got 35 years experience. He knows what he's looking at on a boiler tube. This whole life is around making boilers. So we get the stuff back from the lab. We compare it with the spec sheet and lo and behold, the alloy material in there that's supposed to, it's called Inconel, is the, it's like a nickel additive to a certain percentage. I don't know, remember the exact constituents of the metals. Suffice to say that we, they, we got cheated on some of the tube sections. They were just straight carbon steel. And that's why they were popping on us. And so when we put this to the manufacturers, they were all smug in the warranty discussions, okay? We had to get our corporate involved. We had to threaten them to kick them off another job, a big job, to get this smaller job taken care of. Lo and behold, you see all the quality sheets from China signed off, all of things in order, and then you send it to the lab. I've seen this over and over in the wind industry. You get this stuff from China. You send people over to the factory, to the blade factory. Everything's signed off. You send technicians into the blades. They find all of these quality issues. And the plant manager just shrugs his shoulders. Well, you signed off on all this stuff. Your QA program signed off on this. I don't know what happened. It was fine when we looked at it. And it's sitting in their custody the whole time. So that's what I'm trying to tell you guys. Okay? These other people don't have the standards we have. And they don't care. What are you going to do? Sit and spin? Sue them? They don't care. You got nowhere else to go because all the manufacturing's there. That's another thing people don't understand. There's no U.S. manufacturer to go to. All the manufacturing has been moved there. <laughs> so you try to work with them. I mean, really, I could go on for hours, but this doesn't surprise me. And this is supposed to be the salvation. This is going to fix all of our problems. Here we go again. Here's another article. I'll put a link to this. I've been talking about this. No one cares. No one cares about the cobalt, the DRC being dug up by kids being used in, you know, your phones, your laptops, your, 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 your Teslas. No one cares. Coal, slave labor, and subsidies created cheap panels. Until recently, many renewable energy advocates claimed that China had made solar panels so much cheaper than everybody else because of efficiency, automation in factories, and improved supply chains. But events over the last few months make clear that the reason China came to dominate the market, producing 71% to 90% of solar panel components, so basically they dominate the industry, is due to three main factors. Cheap coal, you know, to power the factories and make the polysilicon. Heavy Chinese government subsidies allowing for the dumping of solar panels on foreign markets. Really? That's what, you know, mercantilism is. We did the same thing, so did the British. And the use of forced labor in conditions the U.S. government representatives today describe as, quote, genocide and, quote, slavery. <laughs> so we're going <laughs> to... Can't make this up. We're going to base the energy transition on, quote, genocide and slavery. I mean, come on, guys. It's all bullshit. It's all about money. It's bullshit. It's all bullshit. Excuse my language, but I mean, come on. Moreover, there is little evidence the Chinese significantly automated its factories, which is why it has had to rely so much on forced labor. We had war crimes trials after World War II because the Germans were using forced labor in their armaments factories. Not just Jewish forced labor, people from the occupied countries were forced to travel to Germany or other munitions factories from France, the low countries, Norway, to work in factories to produce goods and armaments for the German war machine. That was illegal. People went to prison. People were hung over this. 
And we're going to base our energy transition on this. I mean, you can't make it up. Link in the show notes. Wanted to point this out. Uh, there's always opportunity, right? And you have to be open to it. European chop stocks are very cheap right now. As a matter of fact, I will be, you know, as part of the coffee can portfolio, co- part of the rotation that I'm doing out of a lot of things into from overvalued to undervalued, there are opportunities in Europe. It's historically undervalued relative to the U.S. And money is flowing in there now. Now, this is, you know, two months. You've seen in the past, you know, over the last 10 years, eight years, whatever, six years here, it's been up and down. But is this a trend? I don't know. It could be. Why? Well, we're seeing a breakout, right? We've got a got a basing pattern that's been going on since the last financial crisis, basically. And we're seeing the euro. These are the 50 biggest euro stocks. This is the euro stocks 50 index. It's breaking out to the upside. Okay. And uh, so maybe that's why the fund flows are increasing because this gets picked up by trend following, by hedge funds, by traders. And, you know, this is very powerful when you have a, a, a trading range and you break out of it, you know, yeah, you'll typically come down and, and test this. And as long as it's maintained, you usually see a move higher. Now, I don't, I don't know what's going to precipitate it. I don't know if it's going to be long lived. I don't know. But I'm telling you, this is what the kind of things I look for. People ask me, well, how do you do things? You know, I'm buying a European bank right now. I'll probably showcase it in the newsletter. It's went through this financial crisis back here. It got nailed. It's in a smaller country that's based on tourism and it's healing up nicely. Now, people don't like to invest in banks because they're hard to value. Is it selling at half a book value? What's the real book value? That's some of the questions that get asked. But I like what I'm seeing and there's opportunity. And it has some unique characteristics, I think, that could allow it to outperform. But what I'm trying to do is this is what I look for, things like this, guys. Who's talking about buying Euro stocks? No one. Europe's going to fade away, right? Uh, you know, who knows? But what we're seeing here is this is pretty powerful when you have a trend, in, uh, a, a, a trading range, and you break out. So that's I wanted to bring this to your knowledge. More to come on this in the newsletter and also in these discussions. So that's it for this week, guys. Um, appreciate the support. I hope I'm not getting too political. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna do what I gotta do. I'll say what I need to say. Some people will like it, some people won't. Change the channel if it offends you. But uh, it seems like a lot of people are liking what we're talking about. Channel continues to grow. You know, we're getting up to 2,000 views now. Um, the the people are subscribing. We're getting up to close to 6,500 subscribers. We've talked about doing a live chat. I need to do that. I want to try that and see how that people respond to that. Uh, maybe we can get a good argument going with some trolls and ankle biters. I don't know. It's at least could be entertaining for folks, but, uh, you know, uh, I hope this information is beneficial for you. I hope you're getting something out of this. The feedback I get is 95%, 98% positive. So based on that, I'm just going to continue doing it, the format I'm doing and talking about the subjects that I'm talking about. And, uh, I hope that we're bringing some critical thinking to you. I hope that we're bringing another perspective to you. And we're trying to, you know, not deliberately just be the opposite of the mainstream media, but delve deeper into subjects and not just give you the party line, the CNBC, BNN, Bloomberg, you know, boilerplate crap that's put out by corporate media. So I hope this is helpful. I think the proof is in the pudding. The portfolio is performing excellent. And I hope that, uh, you know, it's a manifestation of, I think, contrary thinking, that if you are a contrarian thinker and you have the patience, you can get paid. So that's it for this week, guys. Appreciate the, uh, like I said, and we'll talk to you next week.